back for two plenaries this afternoon, um, the first of which uh, we'll move into just at, at the minute. Uh, Karen Kilby uh, is here with us from Durham U University uh, to deliver this particular plenary paper. Karen's the Bead Professor of uh, Catholic Theology at Durham, a post she's had since 2014. Um, before that, she taught at uh, St. Andrews in Birmingham and Nottingham, so several UK ins institutions. Uh, Karen's a very senior theologian in the British context. She's been past, or she is past president of the uh, Catholic Theological Association of Great Britain and more recently um, of the Society for the Study of Theology. Um, she's the author of a good many books and articles, um, well-known in particular for studies of Karl Rahner. Um, one of her recent books, Balthazar, A Very Critical Introduction, is a fine and spiky read. Um, and she's in the middle of an extended research project on the theology of suffering. Uh, and the piece that she has for us t t t today is re related to that work um, and extends it uh, in an interesting direction, death, a hesitation. Um, would you please welcome Karen to the podium? Thanks very much, Phil, and um, thanks very much for the invitation. Thanks to Phil and, and Kate both. It's, it's really an honor and a pleasure to be here with you. In this paper, I'll try to do three things. First, I'll outline Barth's understanding of death and the associated claims in relation to resurrection and eternal life as he presents these things to us in two dogmatic texts from the 1940s. Secondly, I want to draw out and reflect on some similarities between all this and Karl Rahner's distinctive theology of death as it set out a little later in the 20th century. And then thirdly, I want to express a hesitation. I think there are some difficulties in accepting Barth's approach and probably also Rahner's on these matters. Or if I were to give voice to my hesitation somewhat less hesitantly, in a rhetoric maybe better fitted to a BART conference, I might say, to this view of death and eternal life, any commitment we have to Jesus Christ, to the significance of Jesus Christ and to the good news of the gospel requires us to say a decisive no. BART offers a vision which, it is true, appears sober and serious and spiritually challenging, but confronted this is in my Bardian rhetorical mode, confronted with this particular sort of seriousness and sobriety, the gospel itself requires us to reject the challenge, to refuse to be serious, to turn our face against sobriety. Before I begin presenting Bard's position, it's worth making a couple of preliminary comments. First of all, what's under consideration here is not a particularly central topic of theology in our time in general, or for Bart in particular. You might not know that at this conference. Um, <laughs> sorry for so much death, but I think you could read many a book introducing theology without coming across the theology of death. You could probably read quite a few introductions to Bart's theology without coming across it. Um, so I won't be claiming uh, that in focusing on this question, I'm starting right at the heart of Barth's thought or right at the heart of theology itself. It's a topic which can feel a little peripheral and maybe rightly so. And yet I think it's nevertheless an interesting, a telling point at which to probe a theological vision. Larger themes not only come together here, but they come together in a distinctively concrete way. 
My other preliminary comment has to do with my insertion of Karl Rahner into the discussion. One reason for bringing in Rahner on death is just that it makes for an interesting comparison. I find the similarities in the two accounts in the midst of their differences quite striking. But I have other motives. I'm also hoping that bringing Rahner in here can be taken as an act of ecumenical goodwill. Though I think Bart's account of death is problematic, he's not alone in going wrong in this way, but is in the very good company of a truly great 20th century Catholic theologian. Now, I'm, I'm not sure if this is true, but at this point, especially if you were an English audience, I would worry that I would start to get some resistance from you and you might stop taking me seriously. Rahner, his good company, he's a great 20th century Catholic theologian, surely not. Surely we know he's the Catholic Schleiermacher. Surely he's old hat and we've seen through him by now. So my final reason for introducing Rahner is that I think that something has gone quite badly wrong with a lot of Protestant reception of modern Catholic theology. Not only has Rahner been wrongly sidelined and othered, but when, as so often, he's paired with Hansers von Balthasar, the way in which the two of them tend to be framed, whether as regards the question of modernity, for instance, or as regards how you should place them in relation to Protestant theology, the way they tend to be framed is almost exactly the opposite, in my view, of what it should be. It seems important to me, therefore, to bring Rahner back into serious conversation with Protestant theology, even when, as on today's issue, one has to say that about his theology of death, too, it's necessary to hesitate. So I'll begin by outlining, we've, we've heard about it quite a bit before, but mine will be a slightly different outline, outlining Bart's view of death and associated claims about eternal life or resurrection, as these are found in 3.2 of the Church Dogmatics and in Dogmatics in Outline, two texts published within a year of each other um, in 1948 and 1947, respectively. In the same nervous way as many of the other conference speakers, I'm specifying my text quite carefully um, because I'm aware of the hazards of speaking as a non-Bardian in a context like this one where someone is almost bound to tell me that I have not mentioned something to be found in 1-2 or 2-1 and 4-3 or 3-4. <laughs> and that if I had mentioned this, everything would appear in a different light. I will also, in this lecture, retain my focus on these specifically dogmatic texts and the vision offered in them. Professor Tietz's paper yesterday was fascinating, um, and she made the case well that if one wants the fullest possible access to the mind of Bart, then reading sermons alongside dogmatic work is necessary. But what I'm wanting to probe in this lecture is not the mind of Bart, but the presentation of the dogmatics at, at this point. So in Church Dogmatics 3.2, Bart offers a discussion of time as part of his doctrine of creation. And this includes, under the name Ending Time, a discussion of death. And in Dogmatics and Outline, following the Apostles' Creed as he is, Bart is led to touch on the resurrection of the body and eternal life. Death is, to put it very briefly on Bart's account, both unnatural and natural. It's universally feared, it menaces and assaults us, and infuses its gloom and threat over the rest of life. Anyone who's not aware of this is keeping their head in the sand or lacks a proper orientation towards life. 
But death is something good and included in the will of God, the good limit properly set to our created being, which can be accepted peacefully, for which indeed we can be grateful. It is both divinely willed and not divinely willed, natural to us and an alien intrusion. One side of this, on Bart's account, is much more immediately evident to us than the other. Bart begins in 3.2 with a negative side of death, with death as something gloomy, which we cannot but fear, which tinges the whole life leading to it. This part of the matter he seems to consider easy to access. Indeed, he begins his discussion of ending time with what looks rather like a phenomenology of our experience in time as it's lived towards death. And that, I should say, just to relate to yesterday's uh, paper from Ken, comes in the large print before the small print treating the Old Testament, which is what he was principally uh, drawing on. So Bart writes, we're proceeding towards a point where we shall be no longer. There's a real disquiet arising from the fact that the point will come when still alive and therefore still involved in that flight from non-existence still hungering and thirsting after further life, we shall not be able to live any further. We will then have a time with a present, but with no more future. The last of the ice flows on which we placed our feet again and again will no longer support us. In this vein, Bart describes being in time as a flight from our non-being from which we come, a flight which is finally destined to be futile if we must ultimately die and again find ourselves confronted by non-being. Though this is not the only way of thinking about death, it is, he writes, obviously the only way we know of. The reason that death is so unsettling, that the boundedness of our life by its end is more troubling than its boundedness by its beginning, is our guilt. This guilt in all directions in relation to God and to fellow human beings in small things and in great will stare us in the face when we die. At our death, our past, our life as a whole, will be one of total guilt and retrogression, one long failure. As we approach our end, Bart writes, we approach God, God's judgment, which can only mean our rejection. Ultimately, God is the terror in our death. But of course, we must say more. God is gracious. God is ultimately for us, even in our guilt. The actual rejection is suffered in death by Jesus Christ, and so not necessarily by us. Death nevertheless remains for us, however, a sign of God's judgment, a sign of the judgment even if the judgment is not executed on us. And as I read Bart, something of the sense of gloom, intrusion, alienness, disquiet remain with us, even with believers, even if at the same time the believer can say that in Christ our death is beyond and beneath us. So in one sense, death is unnatural to us, and insofar as it's experienced as a sign of God's judgment, it's experienced as something unnatural, something against us and alien to us. But in another sense, death is natural, part of the goodness of our creaturely existence. It's not clear that we have much or any experiential access to this natural quality of death. Nevertheless, the discussion of ending time rather cautiously, almost warily, moves to an affirmation 
that death is natural and not fundamentally negative, that the finitude of our being belongs to our God-given nature. Death is part of what God wills for us as creatures. How do we know this? Barth does not want to ground the naturalness of death in empirical observation. He explicitly rejects that any theological conclusion about death should be drawn from biology. The assertion of the naturalness of death fits within and is consonant within, with Barth's broader theological understanding of what it is to be a creature in time, finite and dependent, and in all these ways different from God. But the explicit reasons given for holding to it are Christological and soteriological. Jesus Christ could not have done what he did if his life had not been finite. Christ had to be able to die in order to accomplish salvation. And if his dying, writes Bart, is the sum total of the good which God has shown to the world, how can we dare to understand man's mortality as something intrinsically negative and evil? To that, Christological consideration is added a soteriological one. If we never died, then the definitive thing which Christ did for us could never definitively take hold. How could Christ finally deliver us from the judgment of God if there was always more time in which we could keep trying to deliver ourselves, but in which we would in fact only multiply our guilt? In what strange light, writes Bart, would the merciful righteousness of God be set if our reconciliation with him were never to take effect? Death, understood in this second way, not as judgment on sin, but as naturally given with our creation, while maybe not joyful in itself, has a range of positive consequences. It helps us remember we are creatures, not self-subsistent. We could logically still be creatures if we had an unending existence. Bart doesn't think that the two things are fundamentally incompatible, but it wouldn't be good for us because we'd be even more inclined to delude ourselves into denial of our dependence than we already are. Death is thus an aid to realizing the truth of our situation. The limitation of our life also helps put a limit to our sinfulness. What would become of us, he writes, if, an endless, if in an endless life we had the constant opportunity to achieve a provisional ordering of our relationship with God and our fellows, or rather to postpone the ordering of this relationship, accomplishing it best only in that daily drowning of the old Adam, which is always so doubtful a matter because he can unfortunately swim. <laughs> the answer to this question, what would become of us, is that we would be able to infinitely multiply our guilt. Bart also suggests in a more positive vein that the fact that our life is finite helps give importance to how we live it gives an urgency to Christian ethics. In the context of this double construal of death, it's not too hard to give an explanation of Barth's understanding of resurrection and eternal life. Salvation, to put it briefly, means delivery from death understood in the first sense, death as sin has made it to be, death as judgment and punishment. It does not, however, mean deliverance from death in the second sense. Death is natural and appropriate to us and willed by God to be part of our nature. From such a thing, we do not need to be saved. So whatever resurrection and eternal life are, they are not more time, some extension of the duration of our lives. 
As we heard yesterday, the New Testament does not in any way go beyond the sober realism of the Old Testament, which takes the creaturely finitude seriously. And if we wish that it did, Bart writes, as again we heard yesterday, it may well be that we are pursuing pagan dreams of a good time after death. What then do resurrection and eternal life amount to? The New Testament, Bart says, looks forward to the eternalizing of this ending life. So it looks forward to the eternalizing of this ending life. We hope, he writes, for the glorification by the eternal God of our natural and lawful, this-sided, finite, and mortal being. What does glorification mean here? The glorification by the eternal God of our natural and lawful, this-sided, finite, and mortal being. Sometimes Bart writes about the completion of the incompleteness of our life, but most often he describes glorification in terms of a revelation, a making clear of what, because of Christ, was always in fact the truth of this life. So as I understand fundamentally, the glorification is the making clear of the way that the life actually was because of Christ. The Christian hope, he writes in Dogmatics and Outline, is the uncovering of the truth in which God sees our life. In the eschaton, the light, in the eschaton, the light falls from above into our life. In relation to passages like these, though, there seems to be a question which, at least in these dogmatic texts, Bart does not quite answer. And it's the question, I think, that Raymond, uh, Ray Anderson raised yesterday, the thing to which we look forward, this eternalizing of our ending life, do we ourselves ever experience it? Do we witness our life illuminated by this light from above? Do we get to see, to be aware of, to have an experience of this making clear of what, because of Christ, was always the truth of our life? When would we be able to do this given that there is no more us after our death. In another passage, Bart writes of man as the being who is concealed and imperceptible and inconceivable in his freedom. He's talking here about freedom from guilt and the release from judgment and the curse of death, which is brought about by the cross. He writes of man in this state of concealed, inconceivable freedom as one who waits for its, the freedom's, revelation. So my question is, does this one who is waiting ever see the revelation for which he waits? One reading of the implication of Bart's quite definitive and confident denial of any continuation in time after death as set out in these dogmatic texts. It's, it would be a different reading that we heard yesterday from the sermons. But one reading of what's implied by the insistence that we really become past when our lives are over in time that our past and limited life is our real but only life, that there is no other existence above and beyond our own this-sided existence. So one reading of all that is that we do not, we do not ever see the revelation for which in concealment we wait. Um, it's hard to be certain but I think his text is at least open to the inference that we ourselves don't experience the glorification by God of our mortal being. We're not in the audience, as it were, for some moment of uncovering of the truth in which God sees our life. 
While Bart may speak of our lives having eternal significance because of being known as past by God, if our lives are known precisely as past and we are no more, then we ourselves might not seem to be in on the eternal knowing of our lives. This is at least arguably the logic of his position since our kind of knowing is properly temporal and not eternal. Now, no doubt, even if one accepts a reading like that, one should say um, that to hope and trust and cling to God is already to participate in such an eschatological knowing, already to glimpse the revelation for which we wait, even in the midst of living under the sign of God's judgment. We experience already and now something of the unveiling as well as the veiling of God's merciful acceptance of our lives. But at least on the reading that I'm exploring, Bart doesn't leave space for these glimpses, this veiled awareness, which may be available to us in this life to be superseded by something else in our experience. He doesn't, to put it another way, seem to allow in these dogmatic texts, however differently the sermons may be, that the seeing through the glass darkly and dialectically, which we have now, is to be replaced later or in some other non-temporal but nevertheless experienceable way by a seeing face to face. Let me just offer an analogy for the way I'm proposing that he's at least open to being read here. Suppose I'm a character in a film. Suppose in this film my life is profoundly ambiguous. I'm weak, I betray others, I make a fool of myself. But there's also some trust and hope mixed up in it all. And then, three quarters of the way through the film, still in this same mixture of moral misery and some sort of undertones of faith and hope, I lie on my deathbed and I die. Now, let's suppose the film is made in such a way that by the end of it, for some reason, to the viewer, my life can be seen, even in all its patheticness and misery, as wonderfully beautiful. This is because of something that went before or comes after, something happening in the background that I wasn't aware of, or the way the music is played, or the camera angle, or key action of some other character. There's a perspective from which, then, my life was fundamentally beautiful, but I myself never had any full, clear, unambiguous experience of that perspective. By the end of the film, the viewer knows of a truer, deeper, eternal significance to the character's life. And this might really be the truth of that character's life, its final meaning, but it's a truth and a meaning to which the character herself never has access, or certainly never any kind of full, undistorted, undialectical access. Would it matter, would it be a problem if Bart's eschatology is indeed understood along these lines? If resurrection and eternal life are real but never in effect experienced by us, or at least not in any way beyond the experience we already have of them glimpsed and fragmentary in our temporal lives? I'll return to that question in a few moments, but I first want to bring Karl Rahner's theology of death into the discussion. Rahner, so, Take a breath from Bart and my no doubt misinterpretation and listen to Ronner for a little while. Ronner also offers a double view of death. Death is linked to judgment and punishment, something dark and threatening on the one hand, and death is part of the proper order of things, a positive feature of human life on the other. If Adam had not fallen, according to Ronner, he still would have come to an end, to a finish of his life and this would have been a positive completion, a consummation, a fulfillment. But as we experience death, it is also a catastrophe, 
judgment, something to be feared, punishment of sin. We experience death then in contradictory terms. It is, Rana writes, an act of self-completion, a life-synthesizing self-affirmation, but also a dark fate, the thief in the night, an emptying and ending from which we shrink in horror. Should sound partially familiar, but there are some differences here from what I outlined in Bart. Rahner's account of death as part of creation as originally intended is more fully affirmative than Bart's. Death is not here part of the shadow side of God's work, according to Rahner, but directly positive. The consummation, the completion that Adam would have attained was a straightforward, would have been a straightforward good. Secondly, Rahner um, presents death as a human act something we do and not just something we suffer in a way that I don't see at all in Bart. And finally, while Christ plays a central role in both accounts of death, it's a different role with a difference following familiar Protestant Catholic lines. For Bart, Jesus Christ goes a certain way in death precisely so that we do not have to. He suffers death as divine punishment so that for us death ceases to, can cease to be punishment. He suffers the death in death so that we are freed from it, so that it can be behind and beneath us. For Rahner, Jesus Christ, so, so for Bart, I said he goes a certain way in death so that we don't have to go that way. For Rahner, Jesus Christ opens a way so that we too can go that way. Death, which can be experienced only as the advent of emptiness, as the dead end of sin, as the darkness of the eternal night, through Christ's obedient yes, becomes something else, becomes the advent of God in the midst of that empty loneliness. And grace makes possible our own dying with Christ, our own ability to obediently approach the empty abyss of death in faith, hope, and love. Insofar, Rahner writes, as these fundamental acts of faith in darkness, hope against hope, and love of a God who appears as a God of inexorable justice, and so far as these fundamental acts of faith, hope, and love become constituents of death as an act of the human being, death itself is changed. The dreadful falling into the hands of the living God, which death must appear as a manifestation of sin, becomes in reality, into thy hands I commend my spirit. Bart and Rahner then don't by any means have identical theologies of death, but there are nevertheless underlying similarities in structure and perhaps because of that, quite a range of similarities in detail. Like Bart, Rahner insists that we know of the universality of death from faith and not from biology. Like Bart, he, he emphatically denies that resurrection and eternal life have anything to do with an after to death. It is not a matter, he says, citing Feuerbach, of changing horses and riding on. Where Bart warns against pursuing pagan dreams of a good time after death, Rahner outlines a Christian understanding of eternal life, which is distinct, he says, from mythological fantasizing. In ways very similar to Bart, Rahner makes the case for seeing the finitude of our lives positively, arguing, just as Bart does, that endless revisability would be something terrible, and that the limited span of life gives a gravity, a significance to the decisions we make. And for Rahner, as for Bart, finally, resurrection and eternal life can be understood as the eternalizing of the one limited in time life we have led. 
It's interesting to take up the question I raised a few minutes ago about the logic of Barth's position about who experiences its eternal life and resurrection as set out in those texts, to take up that question in relation to Rahner. On the one hand, one doesn't find any particularly clear account of what our experience of resurrection and eternal life might be from Rahner. There's a somewhat unusual speculation about the soul shifting to a pan-cosmic relation to matter at the point of death in Rahner's 1958 book. But I think this is motivated more by a desire to resolve certain internal difficulties in neo-scholastic thought about body and soul than by a wish to map out the nature of eternal life for its own sake. And in Rahner's subsequent and fairly frequent writings on death, at a time when the significance of neo-scholasticism had receded, he drops the pan-cosmic theme without putting anything into its place. So Wooden couldn't say that filling out a conception of eternal life is the center of his project on death. But it does nevertheless seem fairly clear from the elusive statements that Rahner makes on the subject that whatever the experience of resurrection and eternal life are, he is imagining that they will be our experience. He writes of death, for instance, as a state of final and definitive completion and immediacy to God, and in a more general vein about the whole of creation sharing in the end in the eternity of God. We, it seems he imagines, will have this immediacy and we will somehow be involved in this sharing. So though we have no more time after death, or rather no after to death, we do have something else, a participation in eternity. Whatever that may mean, Rahner's language seems to suggest much more clearly than does Marx that it is not just our lives as things in the past that remain present and known to God in eternity, but that we ourselves in some unknowable way partake in that eternity. As if you might say, the character in the film gets to join with its watchers um, and gets to come to an understanding of the final significance of our life as a whole and, and the rest of the film. Now, if my reading of Bart's position, by contrast with Rahner's, is right, should it worry us? Is it a problem? Is it a problem if eternal life and resurrection refer to an eternal significance to our lives in time, and this is a significance which we ourselves can expect to have no access, or at least none other than what's already given now during the course of our lives in a concealed, veiled way. I can imagine arguments in either direction. On the one hand, one might object that on the reading I've outlined, Bart would be giving an affirmation of resurrection and eternal life that is disturbingly hard to distinguish from a denial of resurrection and eternal life. But on the other side, one might argue that there's something a little childish, a little egotistical with the question I've raised, with the worry about our own experience of the significant of things, our own relationship or lack of it to eternity. Is Bard's position here not just the final extension of the theocentrism and Christocentrism that mark his work as a whole? In the end, our trust is in God, our orientation is to God in Christ, not to what God's expected to do for us. Why shouldn't it be enough and more than enough to look forward in hope and faith that my life, past though it will be, will be graciously accepted by God and remain present to God, glorified by God, that it will not drop into insignificance even if everyone else has forgotten me. You might think it seems there's something a little greedy and self-centered with a preoccupation about wanting to be there to see this happen, so to speak. 
the focus on experience, the concern with whether we experience it or not, is maybe an unfaithful self-preoccupation, a manifestation of a state of being in curvatus in, say, a mark of sin and unbelief. Now, I find myself almost, almost, but not quite, persuaded by this latter argument. I'm not too sure how the stripping of futurity out of the concepts of resurrection and eternal life corresponds with the impression that the New Testament makes on me. I've yet to be persuaded, that's to say, that Bart is right in claiming that the hope of the New Testament is not materially different from that of the old. But I can at least feel the force of the argument that should be enough to be grateful for the particular time-bound life I've had, for the liberation from sin and judgment, the communion with God already through the grace of Christ given with and in it. And that on this basis, I should be able to contemplate my own ending without feeling the need to fantasize about more. I can, I said, feel the force of this argument, but I can do so only if I retain the resolutely first-person perspective that I've just been using. There's a lot of eyes in there. When I contemplate my life, I can see that perhaps it would be a sign of immaturity and ingratitude to say the gifts and joy and grace received within it, the chance to glorify God, indeed, received within it, are not enough, and that hope must reach towards something more on a personal level. But when I contemplate the lives of others, particularly lives cut drastically short, lives distorted and destroyed by hunger, disease, illness, abuse, and torture, I begin to feel some hesitation about the wisdom and adequacy of the sobriety Bart urges upon us. And I should say, I haven't made this quite as clear as I should in the way, I have some anxiety about it, wh whether or not you adopt that particular interpretation. But so even if Bart's interpreted more like Rahner, where we definitely experience, um, have an eternal experience of the completion of our lives. Either way, I find myself with some hesitancy. One common feature to Bart and Rahner's treatment of death I haven't yet mentioned is a certain individualism. They each, at central moments in their presentation, frame the human relation to death in terms of one's relation to one's own death. But in spite of what the existentialists tell us, I'd like to suggest that that's not actually for most of us, for most of our lives, the primary way in which we encounter death. Our encounters with death in the second person, your death, the deaths, whether peaceful or terrible, of the ones that I know and love, and in the third person, their death, including the horrendous deaths about which I read in history or I learn from the television news, are, it seems to be, are, it seems to me more significant for the texture of our existence for much of our lives, and mostly ought to be more significant for the life in faith, as the typical patterns of Christian prayer make clear. So those things ought to be more significant to me than reflection on my own death. There's a kind of distortion that enters in, I'd like to suggest, if we're asked to reflect on death while guided primarily to think about our own death, because of who the we are who read or write the theology of Bart or Rahner. Whatever tragedies and sufferings we may individually or collectively bear, quite a lot will have gone well in our lives to put us in a position to ponder Bart's thought. In some dimensions, at least, our lives have to have flourished. We must have had, for most of our time, enough to eat. We must have had a good deal of education. We have to have some time and energy spare from the necessities of survival or in the endurance of affliction. And so the fact that I might be able to say, when reading Bart, 
I can reflect on the nature of my life and my relation to death, and I say, yes, I must accept the limits and sorrows of creaturely finitude, the good with the ill, and rejoice and give thanks for the whole. If I reflect on my life, that doesn't mean I can be confident that such a yes could or should be uttered by all. Now, if you're paying close attention, you may notice that I've begun to slide right out of the framework of Bart's thought here, and for that matter, of, of Rahner's. For Bart and for Rahner, the problem with death, the thing that makes death problematic is guilt. Guilt, sin, judgment. Suffering doesn't make much of a showing here. Suffering, as I understand Bart, is seen in one of two ways. Either it's an element of the negative side of creation, part of the way that God providentially orders things, and therefore part of the very goodness of creation, just as death in the natural sense is. So either it's that, something to be accepted, something in the midst of which we must praise God rather than think to question him. So the creation has its light and its dark, its moments of joy and sorrow, and the whole is good, and the whole we have to praise God, the whole can glorify God, the sorrow as much as the joy. Or suffering is associated with sin itself, something from which I need to be delivered, but from which I am delivered precisely by the forgiveness of sins. As a kind of contrast to this, I find the category of horrendous evils, which Marilyn McCord Adams introduced into the philosophy of religion, a helpful one. Um, Adams defines horrendous evils um, basically as being involved in something which gives you a, a reason to doubt whether your life could be a great good. Um, I won't give you her technical thing is not for reading out loud. But um, she illustrates the concept with a list of paradigmatic horrors, which I won't read you the whole list, but a few of them she includes. And she's drawn her horrors from, from they all have some basis in reality. But her paradigmatic examples of horrendous evils are the rape of a woman and axing off of her arms, psychophysical torture whose ultimate goal is the disintegration of personality, betrayal of one's deepest loyalties, cannibalizing one's own offspring, child abuse of the sort described by Ivan Karamazov, child pornography, parental incest, slow death by starvation. Sin and suffering are jumbled up together in complex ways in this list. That's one of the virtues of Adams as against many other philosophers of religion. But a little attention to the elements of suffering here which are not simply the suffering of one who has sinned or the suffering for one's own sins raises questions about the approach to death and resurrection of both Bart and Rahner. I'm not convinced that one can really say in relation to the kind of child abuse described by Ivan Karamazov, or in relation to slow death by starvation, or in relation to the sufferer of a torture designed to bring about the disintegration of the personality. I'm not sure that one can really say in relation to lives which have included such evils, that this is in a sense all there is, that there can be no more, no other, nothing beyond the completion in death of these lives, that resurrection and eternal life can be conceived in terms only of the eternalizing of the life that has been lived in time and the revelation of the truth of the way God has always seen it. Now, it's possible that some of the good Bardians in the audience will want to stop me here and explain that I've unfortunately misunderstood the basic premise of his theology and I'm unfortunately arguing on the wrong grounds. 
The point is not to look around at the world in a free, speculative manner and ask, what understanding of death and resurrection and eternal life might I decide to find acceptable in light of what I see around me in the world? The point is always to begin with Jesus Christ, as witnessed in scripture. And of course, this is right. So really, the argument, my argument needs to be framed a little more explicitly, slightly differently, to make contact with Bart's thought. It needs to be framed like this. If Bart derives his understanding of death and resurrection from his understanding of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, and if, on the other hand, his account of death and resurrection cannot, in fact, be good news, if it is not, in fact, consistent with belief in the final victory of God, then the very heart of Christian faith itself and the witness of scripture as a whole requires us, constrains us, demands of us to suppose that something is wrong in the exegetical choices he's made. Something has to be wrong with the way that he construes the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's the logic of my argument. What then, you might ask, do I propose instead? What description of resurrection and the life of the world to come what description in which time is allowed to play a role would, make adequate, would be adequate to make the gospel genuinely good news, even for those who suffer horrendous evils of the kind McCord Adams points us to, even for the abused child who dies young, for the person who suffers a slow death from starvation, and so on. This is a question that I won't try to answer. I don't have a map, a description, a plan of resurrection and eternal life. In fact, I don't think what's necessary is to say more than Bart and Rahner do. The problem is, strangely, that they say too much. By insisting on such restraint on our imaginations and our understandings, they are insufficiently apophatic about resurrection and eternal life. By knowing that there is no temporal continuity, that there is no time beyond this time we have before death, they are too knowing. Here is elsewhere, I think, a properly apophatic stance is not one which knows what is not the case, one which knows how to demythologize, as it were, but a properly apophatic stance is one in which an exuberant and unrestrained way piles up an impossible to digest superfluity of images and claims. Um, that'll be very familiar as a pattern of thought to anyone who's ever looked at uh, Dennis Turner and so on. That, the relation of the apophatic to the cataphatic is not that they're opposites, but that you arrive at apophasis through going through a very cataphatic route. I began the paper with a suggestion that the themes I'd be looking at are not and should not necessarily be at the center of contemporary Christian theology. Something would seem to be amiss with a theology that wanted to spend a lot of time filling out the content of resurrection and eternal life, dwelling too long on exactly what they did or didn't mean. Something would analogously be wrong with a pastoral practice, which tried to comfort by giving coherent and confident accounts of how exactly the evils of this world would be met and redeemed in what's to come. And on the other hand, there is something right about the way Bart and probably Rahner want to direct our attention to the weight and significance of this one life that we lead and to discourage escapist fantasies. This is where our attention needs to be. But it seems to me that in some cases, at least proper attention to this one life that we lead, a proper orientation to it is only possible if our hoping, trusting imaginations 
are allowed to stretch right beyond it. We will be able more faithfully, less evasively, to attend to some of the terrors and horrors of the world, which are not, in fact, only terrors and horrors of our sin and guilt and God's condemnation, in my view. We'll be able more faithfully, less evasively, to attend to these if we're free to say, this is not how it should be, this cannot be the end, this cannot be all there is. So, um, to end on a slightly lighter note, um, John Barclay wore his um, advertising signs. In my early 20s, I had a brief foray into Taekwondo kind of karate. I wasn't much good, as you can probably guess, and I didn't get too far, but I did get far enough to be asked to chop a board in half. Um, and, and I can't remember whether I did or not, whether I tried, whether I succeeded, but I do remember um, the advice that we were given about how to do it. If we aimed to strike the plank, we were told we would fail. The, it, the secret was not to aim for the board, but for a point six inches beyond it. Something similar I'm suggesting might be true in about an appropriate, serious, committed engage, engagement with this one life in time which we are given. Of course, we shouldn't entertain fantasies of the beyond for its own sake, um, for our entertainment. But if we want to engage with full seriousness and fidelity in this world, in this time in which we find ourselves, including with its horrors, then maybe part of this engagement needs to be a hope which is aimed right beyond this dying, ending time. Thank you.